of his marching forward in victory throughout his kingdom. This is a messianic psalm picturing the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom, and its growth to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72. Hear the word of God. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall bow down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory, Amen and Amen. Father, we come before you thanking you for the encouragement of your word, the hope that it gives to us. And I pray that as I give an exposition of various passages of Scripture, that you would give me clearness of thought and uh, uh, ability to express clearly with my lips uh, that which you have laid upon my heart. And I pray that you would enable all of us to be hearers and doers of your word, to be transformed by your word and uh, built up as a people uh, with fire in our belly, ready to do exploits for King Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the um, inventors that my children have to read about in homeschool is a guy by the name of Robert Fulton who invented the steamboat, right? And he was very discouraged in the, the early uh, time that he had invented that and was running it up and down the river because it seemed like nobody took him seriously. There was lots of jeering, lots of ridicule that he received. And one day there was a man that went on board the boat and said, Mr. Fulton, I presume? Yes, sir. Do you return to New York with this boat? We shall try to get back, sir. This guy had lost all confidence, you know. He was uh, very discouraged. We shall try to get back, sir. Can I have passage down? You can take your chance with us, sir. How much is the passage money? Fulton had never thought about that. After a moment's hesitation, he said, Six dollars. The man became the first person to pay for a steamboat passage in history. 
Four years later, Fulton met this man and told him, the vivid emotions caused by your paying me that first passage money will always be remembered. That, sir, seemed the turning point in my destiny, the dividing line between light and darkness, the first actual recognition of my usefulness from my fellow men. And when I read that story, my heart melted. It really went out to him because here was a guy that had been put down so much that he had lost all hope, and when the hope finally came, you know, it's, it's like it gave life uh, to uh, his vision that uh, he had before. And I know that there are a lot of people who have been put down so much, whether it's in church or in family or at work or wherever, maybe they even put themselves down and Satan's putting them down, that they have lost all hope. And uh, they don't have what it takes to dream big. Uh, or to take risks. If you're, if you're feeling hopeless, you're not going to take risks. It simply does not work. We need hope to have world transformation. What I want to do over the next uh, three weeks, I want to look at four foundational topics that drive the vision of our church and give us enthusiasm and give us excitement for the future. And uh, the first one today is hope. But I uh, after we've done with that series, I also want to look at some of the individual factors that can kind of take the wind, either fill your sail with wind and make you feel like life is worth living, or it can completely take the wind out of your sails, suck the life out of you, suck the joy out of your life. And we want to make sure those factors are dealt with properly so that we can continually have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Now today, I just want to give a, a broad overview uh, a kind of a worldview of the hope that drives us in terms of cultural transformation, in terms of history, and uh, uh, what it is that um, uh, makes our congregation desire to have big, uh, uh, big plans for the future. Now, our view of the future is going to affect our how we act right now. For example, if I if I knew if I was building a building and I knew that two weeks after it was built it would burn down. I probably wouldn't build the building. I mean, it would just take all, <laughs> all desire, all motivation out of doing it. It's the same way with our view of history. If we think that there's no purpose and no success to the efforts that we are putting into changing society, then we're much less likely to persevere in that. But if we believe that our labors in the Lord are not in vain, that every one of them is contributing to the advancement of God's kingdom, it's going to give us a real enthusiasm for what we do. Now, I, I look back through, and I'm always evaluating the things that I've preached on. I look back through the last several years, and I cannot find a single sermon that I've preached on post-millennialism. I've done a couple uh, Sunday school topics. I did a conference on it one time, and some people say, well, Phil, you just ooze eschatology out of your pores, you know, every sermon. And that's true. Your worldview does tend to influence it. But in terms of the overall pattern of uh, what is happening and the different views that are out there. I don't think I've ever given a sermon on it, so I thought it's about time that I, I did so. And I didn't always believe in this doctrine of post-millennialism, uh, and there are many good men and women who do not believe in this doctrine, and I do not in any way want to insult them or uh, imply that they're lesser Christians because they believe in something different, but I do believe that it robs them of their hope. I believe that it diminishes their faith and I think this is a doctrine that we ought to encourage everybody to embrace because it's such an encouraging doctrine. And I think you'll recognize as we go through the sermon that it does make a huge difference. Now let me have you 
go over your handout just briefly. And by the way, uh, if you didn't get a handout, there's plenty more in the back. And if you think we're covering this and it's going to take 10 hours, uh, don't worry. I gave the handout so that we wouldn't have to cover all of the material, okay? Just so that you would have some extra, and we'll just be referring to it from time to time. But on pages one through three, you've got an overview of some of the key themes, three key themes in postmillennialism. On page four, you have two views of the timing of the resurrection. Very important um, uh, topic there. On page five, you have three views of the timing of the Great Tribulation. Now, this is just going to be a Cliff Notes version of postmillennialism. We're not going to cover all the material that could be covered to get a full orb view. But I do want you to resist the temptation to read through that outline, okay? Because I'm going to be saying some things that if you miss them, later on you're going to be wondering, okay, now where is he coming from on that? Because we're going to be building step on step. So I encourage you to resist the temptation to read through that and really concentrate, put your thinking caps on. And because... Not everybody has heard of this topic. I'm going to assume that you don't know anything about postmillennialism. You're about where I was at in 1977. I hadn't even heard of the word. I didn't know what in the world postmillennialism meant. And so the first thing that we need to do is we need to define the three systems of thought that uh, you'll find amongst uh, evangelicals. And since uh, people say that a, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, here, you can hang on to that one, too. We're going to have a picture that you can be uh, looking at, and if we can't see everything, why don't you put the top one on, and Joel, maybe you can put the bottom two on there, and we're going to try to give you a little bit of a, a perspective on the three different systems of thought. We'll just take the top one for now. Um, I've got a couple of dates that uh, are key dates. 30 A.D. is the crucifixion, and you'll see that on all three of the charts. And then 70 A.D. is the next one over. That was uh, not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but that was the time when the temple was destroyed and all of the old covenant uh, forms, the priests, were done away with. Very important date. And, that, and then at the end of each chart is the end of history. That's when people will be ushered into uh, eternity. There will be no more ongoing history as we know it. Now, each of these words, you'll see the word millennial in it, and that's from the noun form millennium, and millennium simply means 1,000, okay? And it refers to the 1,000 years of peace and prosperity and victory that Revelation 20 talk about, and each of the di three different systems of thought have a different perspective on the when, the how, and the where of that 1,000 years. For example, we're going to be seeing that amillennialism um, sees the millennium as being above history, as not being actually in history itself, and uh, they, they have a little bit uh, different perspective. Now, they would, they would bristle at the notion that they don't believe in the victory of the church, as, uh, you know, we talk about the not holding to victory in history, but they would say, no, we believe in victory because when you leave earth and go to heaven, and many of them believe that your first resurrection is actually your death when your soul goes to heaven. Very intriguing idea. But they say the church in heaven is the church triumphant. And of course it is victorious. And all three of these systems have some elements of truth, or there wouldn't be godly men and women who 
uh, who hold to them. So let's define each of these, each of these points. Postmillennialism believes that Jesus Christ will come back visibly and will resurrect the dead after the thousand years, after the thousand years is done. And that's why you've got this prefix post. It is after the millennium or after the thousand years. And the, the uh, um, post-millennialists, in fact, let me give you another uh, sheet that will amplify a little bit on this. Uh, there are some post-millennialists who believe that that thousand years occurs at some time in the future and that it's a literal 1,000 years. And there are others, in fact, why don't we just replace each of these sheets with these and you can put the, the bottom part up. Some of them say it's going to be a thousand years uh, exactly, and that was most of the Puritans held to that, and there are some who continue to hold to that. Not all of them say that, though. Some say, just like Amil's, that it's symbolical of everything that uh, is in Christ's kingdom, the whole period of time down here. But uh, post-millennials believe that Christ's kingdom is going to be gradually growing over time, and so you'll see a gradual... Uh, uphill and then a, a period of time when there's righteousness and victory and then at the end of the millennium not again not all post-millennials believe that there's going to be a brief falling away but uh, i do i don't believe it'll be anywhere near as great or pervasive a falling away as happened in the first century here but there will be a falling away at the end of time now post-millennialists it doesn't matter whether you believe it's a literal thousand years or it's figurative uh, they all believe that Christ's kingdom started in 30 A.D. He inherited uh, the kingdom and it was gradually being possessed over a period of time. And then finally, there's going to be a long period of time in which righteousness will dwell. They believe that the Great Tribulation occurs uh, in a seven-year period right around uh, 70 A.D. And there's all kinds of information that you can gather i've got some good books that you can look at if you're interested in looking at the tribulation but god in his providence made sure that there were plenty of historians around to record the events of that war there was tacitus and suetonius and uh, uh um uh tacitus suetonius uh josephus was a jewish historian cassius there's a number of of uh, authors that wrote at that period of time and if you look at their writings, you will see that they talk about issues that could almost be lifted right out of the book of Revelation. Uh, things like the moon turning red or the sun being blotted out right in the middle of the day. And they say it wasn't a, an, a solar eclipse. It was just all of a sudden the, the sun stopped shining and it scared them to death. Uh, one of the Roman historians talks about blood and fire falling out of the heavens during that time. They talk about a famine and the, the exact cost of the barley and the wheat that Revelation talks about. They talk about the glut of wine and the glut of oil, which you wouldn't expect during a time of famine. It talks about the poisoning of the waters and, and things like the entire length of the Jordan River being blood red, filled with corpses. And so there's a lot of evidence. We're not going to be looking at the tribulation today, but all post-millennialists uh, believe that the tribulation happened right in that period. Okay, let's move on to the next one. The prefix, pre, well, in fact, why don't you keep the, the post-mill one up there, but we'll be referring back to it, and Joel can keep this one here. The pre is pretty obvious. If that's after, post means after. This means that Jesus Christ 
is coming pre or before the millennium. Okay, that should be fairly straightforward. And if you want to make a mark on your charts of where Christ's second coming occurs, these charts are on the last page of your handout. I have marked them with a downward arrow. And on the post-millennial one, you can see that Jesus Christ comes at the end there. On premillennialism, he comes right before the millennium. And in all millennialism, it's the same as post-millennialism. It's uh, right here at the end of history. So even if you don't get everything that's in these systems, if you can see the general markers, then everything else will begin to, uh, will begin to fall into place. Okay. Um, each of these systems share some things in common with at least one of the other systems. Uh, you'll see, for example, on premillennialism that there is a period of time where Christ's kingdom impacts the world and its social structures, impacts in a very tangible way in which you can see history. And that's why I've represented the thousand years here as being this bar down here. And you'll see the, the same thing. It's gradually impacting history here, and uh, the thousand years is on the earth. Now, in contrast to having the, the thousand years being a reign and a victory and peace and righteousness on the earth in both of those systems, you'll see amillennialism has it being something that is in heaven, not something that is on the earth. Now, there may be to some degree of victory on the earth, but they, they see heaven as being the place of the millennium instead of the gradual uphill um, process of Christ's kingdom growing. Isaiah 9, for example, says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's going to establish his, his kingdom. Instead of that, on the pre-mill scheme, you see a sudden bringing in of the kingdom that happens uh, by Christ visibly coming back, forcing the kingdom upon, uh, upon the people of the earth. It's not going to be over a long uh, process of time. Okay. Premillennialists and amillennialists both share something in common. They see the Great Tribulation as being um, right before uh, the second coming of Christ. With amills, it's at the end of time. With premills, it will be a um, thousand years before the end of time, but there will be a, a period of Great Tribulation then. Now, with amillennialism, what is unique to amillennialism is not that they see Jesus Christ as coming back at the end of history, because uh, postmillennialists see that as well, so that's not what makes uh, them unique, nor is it that they see a tribulation at the, uh, 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 you know, right at the end of time here or in the future to us, because premillennialists see a, a great tribulation that's still ahead of us as well. Some people say that the awe in amillennialism means that they don't believe in a millennium. And they would say, no, sure, we believe what the thousand years refers to there. We're not amillennialists in that sense. Um, and it's not what is of the essence of amillennialism because post-mills, in fact, the majority of post-mills today believe that the thousand years is not just limited to this period. The thousand years that is spoken of in Revelation is, is symbolic of the whole period of time that is here. I tend toward this view right here, but it really doesn't matter which of those uh, two that you take. 
uh, it's not of the essence of amillennialism to say that it's symbolic. I believe what is of the essence of amillennialism is that they believe that the millennium is something that is ahistorical. In other words, it is above history. It's not in history itself. Okay? Uh, whereas premillennialism would say, no, it's something that was, is actually going to affect the social structures of, of politics, of everything that you do. The very fabric of society is going to be affected by the reign of Christ. And post-mills say the same thing, even though it's uh, gradually being brought in. So what is of the essence there is that they believe that the millennium is in heaven. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to each of these, and I make note of that there. I don't want to be looking at the exceptions to the rule. I want to look at the rule because it just get confusing if we got into every little detail of, of difference that you'll find between uh, various uh, people. Now, let's start at the uh, end of the post-mill chart. And I've given this handout to give five main proofs for post-millennialism, but all you really need is two. To disprove premillennialism, all you need is to look at the timing of the resurrection, and to disprove amillennialism, all you need to do is to demonstrate that his victory is going to be tangibly seen and felt in history. And so I want to start at the end of the post-mill chart, and we're going to look at the resurrection. And I've got another little thing here. You can make everybody's eyes swim with. I think the biblical doctrine of the resurrection clearly rules out uh, premillennialism. If you look at the page labeled four, second to last page, I think you'll be able to clearly see this. And Bear will probably uh, chuckle at that because we were joking the other day, I think it was yesterday, that we won't be able to clearly see this. He says, Phil, there's nothing wrong with 14-point type. <laughs> and uh, most of this paper is 9-point type. I probably ought to use a little bit bigger print. But I noticed this morning I made a mistake already. When I typed this up um, this week, this last arrow here should not say resurrection of unbelievers. It, it should say that over here because that's the typical pre-mill scheme, but this should say resurrection of all the dead on the post-mill ones. You may want to cross off the unbelievers and uh, write in the appropriate mark there. Okay. On the left-hand diagram, you've got the typical premillennial view where they've got anywhere from three resurrections, and that would be the uh, historic pre-mill view. There aren't very many of those yet today. Uh, anywhere from three to five resurrections. And on the on-mill and the post-mill view, you've got two and only two resurrections. Okay, for the pre-mill view, the first resurrection here is of Jesus Christ and of all of the Old Testament saints, or some would say the martyrs from the Old Testament. The next resurrection on their view would be future to us, but they would say it's when we are raptured out and all dead saints are raised. And then at the end of the tribulation, the premillennialists say that there will be another resurrection of people who have died during the tribulation, like uh, the Jewish martyrs and, and uh, any others that have uh, fallen. And then some would sneak a fourth uh, resurrection right in the middle, but I put it a small arrow because not all of them would hold to that. And then at the end of history, they say 
that's what the scripture is referring to when it speaks of resurrection to condemnation a resurrection of unbelievers now if you can settle in your mind when the resurrection of believers occurs i think you will have um, solved almost every other issue that divides between premillennialists and postmillennialists. Uh, take a look at the first scriptures that are given on that same page under Roman numeral 1 where it says scripture indicates that believers will be raised on the last day of history. John 6:39 says, "This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day." Notice that this verse says believers are going to be raised on the last day. It's not a resurrection just to condemnation, but there are going to be believers who are raised there. But notice where premillennialists place this resurrection. They say that this verse refers to uh, this resurrection here, when we will be uh, raised, if we die before Christ comes back, we'll be raised at that point. And so that's seven years before the millennium starts. Now, as you read through some of those scriptures, you'll see four times that that phrase is repeated, I will raise him up on the last day. Not a thousand years before the last day, as historic pre-mills have said, not a thousand and three years before the last day, as the mid-tribbers say, not a thousand and seven, but it's on the last day of history is what those scriptures are, are referring to. Now, if you read through um, uh, the, the scriptures, the second thing I want you to notice is that it's not just Christians who are raised at that time. John 5, 28 through 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so there's one hour in which both of those categories, both of those groups will be raised to life. And that simply does not fit into the premillennial scheme. Roman numeral 3, in Acts 24, 15, Paul only knows of one resurrection that is still future to us. And he doesn't speak of two, plural. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So both are raised in a resurrection, whereas the premillennialists separate the resurrection of the righteous from the resurrection of the unrighteous by a thousand years. We say, no, it's one resurrection of both the righteous and of the unrighteous. And by the way, he said he agreed with the Pharisees on that doctrine. Many things he disagreed with them on. But the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection of righteous and unrighteous. He says it's the same doctrine that they held to. Now, premills are bound to object, well, what about Revelation 20? What are you going to do with that? And my response is, what am I going to do with it? That's one of the strongest proof texts I can think of that uh, disproves premillennialism. And the interesting thing about this is when you read the various books defending premillennialism, they will say that Revelation 20 is their text it's their strongest proof text that they come up with for example george eldon ladd in his book says if it wasn't for revelation 20 he would be an amillennialist uh, but revelation 20 has forced him into the premillennial camp and so they really do consider that to be a strong passage i have about three or four copies of a, a paper i wrote that goes through all of the different views of revelation 20 and uh, discusses the strengths of each view and discusses the weaknesses of each view and each view does have strengths and weaknesses and it goes through and uh, I think 
the conclusion you'd come to is that the, the post-millennial interpretation is, is definitely by far the strongest. But the only thing I want you to notice today in Revelation 20 is that it only speaks of two resurrections. It does not speak of the three to five resurrections that you'll find in the premillennial uh, scheme. Verse 4 speaks of a resurrection, but lest people think that nobody else is going to get raised, he goes on to say in verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So he's saying, okay, there's going to be another resurrection. There'll be a future resurrection, but it's not the resurrection I'm talking about right now. That's, you can put almost like that in a parenthesis. Then he goes on to say, this is the first resurrection. The one I'm talking about is the first resurrection. There will be another one in the future. Now, here's where the premillennialists say that this first resurrection occurs. Some say this is the first resurrection. Some say this is. Some say this is. And other premills say, well, it's only seven years separated. We'll just treat all of those as being one resurrection. And we can grant them that. But the problem is that if you look at all of the scriptures that have the word first placed with resurrection, what you'll find is every single one of them refers to the first resurrection as the resurrection of Jesus and all of the Old Testament saints. And Revelation 20 says, if this is the first resurrection and the rest of the dead do not rise until the thousand years is finished, it does not matter which system you are looking at, there is no room for any resurrection in between that make sense it says there's a first resurrection in revelation 20 and it says the rest of the dead will not rise again until the thousand years is finished that leaves you know only this view is really being um a view that fits and so i think revelation 20 is devastating to the premillennialist uh viewpoint now, I know this seems maybe like overkill, but I do want you to look at one more passage. And if you want to read it out of your outline, you can look it up. It's 1 Corinthians 15, but in the outline, it's under Roman numeral 4. And let's see, it's the second to last bullet point under Roman numeral 4. I'm just going to read it from there. It says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Notice he only speaks of two resurrections. He says one of those resurrections has already passed. It's the firstfruits. It's uh, Christ and all those firstfruits who rose with him. And then he says the next one is at his coming, and that's at the end. That's when history is ended. Now, which of those charts better fits the idea of the resurrection? To me... I don't see any possibility of it being anything other than what the all-mills and the post-mills hold to here. Now, if you adopt that two-resurrection view, there is no way that you can be a premillennial. And premillennialists recognize that. Uh, when you're evaluating a system, you don't have to uh, look at every argument that they put forward. I've dealt with all the arguments, but all you have to do is pull out some of the foundations and the whole structure crumbles. And this timing issue is a critical issue for defining uh, the, the different systems. Because if they're wrong in the timing of the resurrection, that means they've reversed the whole new covenant order. If the first resurrection of Revelation 20 has happened, then it means the great tribulation has happened. It means that the great falling away and apostasy has happened. It means that Christ has already inherited the kingdom. Um, they're all tied up together. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. 
or we'll start preaching. I think we've, uh, why don't you keep the, you can keep the other overhead uh, up there and maybe we might refer to it from time to time. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Daniel chapter 7. And let's begin reading at verse 13. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, just in terms of context, I want you to notice the preposition to. He came to the Ancient of Days. There's only two times in history that Christ is visibly said to come on the clouds of heaven. One is at the second coming when he comes back from the ancient of days to the earth, when he comes from heaven, from his throne to earth. The other is at his ascension in 30 AD when he comes to heaven, to his throne, to the ancient of days from the earth. Now, I remember when I was in school talking, uh, there was an amillennialist professor who was teaching on this passage here and saying that uh, this is the second coming and that the church is going to be almost totally extinguished before Christ comes back. And I raised my hand and asked him, uh, Sir, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about one thing. If this is a reference to the second coming, how come they use the preposition to instead of the preposition from? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Oh, don't get hung up over prepositions and all those little words. Just get the general drift of the passage. And I was just floored. I didn't even know what to say, so I didn't say anything. But if you don't live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, yeah, you'll get the general drift. It's going to be a snow drift so high you're not going to be able to see clearly, right? God intends us to live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. And it's very clear here. He's ascending to heaven, to his throne. That's the context. Now look at verse 14 and see what happens when he ascends to his throne. It says, then, not 2,000 years later, then, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now this is a very important passage that's alluded to by the New Testament that uh, indicates Christ received the kingdom at the first coming. He received it when he ascended up on high. And uh, what difference this makes is uh, huge. Uh, Jesus says when he, well, on Ascension Day, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That includes the authority that Daniel 7 was talking about. That includes the authority that 1 Corinthians 15 was talking about. All authority, not just authority in heaven, but authority on earth was granted to him at that time. And then people say, well, if that's the case, how come things are so bad in this world? I mean, if this is the kingdom, I don't like it, you know? And, and they've got a point there. But we need to remember that the kingdom does not come in suddenly. That's the misconception that many people have. The kingdom grows gradually. It says in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. In fact, all of the illustrations that Christ gives of, of the kingdom in the parables are gradual growth um, uh, parables. He says it's like wheat that's planted in the ground that first is the bud and then it's a stalk and then there's leaves and then there's the full harvest. There's a gradual growth. Or like in, in Ezekiel where it's this river that flows from the throne. Initially, it's a tiny trickle, not hardly any water at all. But miraculously, this tiny trickle gets deeper 
He tries wading over it. It's up to his ankles, up to his knees. Eventually, he cannot swim over it. And so it's a, a gradual growth that, um, that happens over time. And one other feature I want you to notice on these charts is that both premillennialists and amillennialists see things as getting worse and worse during this kingdom period. He's about to come for the last 2,000 years. He could have come at any time, but he says uh, prior to his coming, things are going to be throughout this period getting worse and worse. So that's represented by this dotted line with the question marks. And the reason I put the question marks there is worse from what? Worse implies that it's uh, coming down from a better position. And I cannot imagine that things, if you're talking about numbers, could have been any smaller of a church than the 120 that were in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. Things have been growing. They haven't been getting worse and worse. There are hundreds of millions of Christians around the world. If you're talking about the church being uh, persecuted and they're uh, looking like there would be, there, there would be a, uh, a wiping out of the church, think of Nero's persecution. Are things really getting worse and worse? Where worldwide, throughout the empire, people had to be in hiding in order to worship God. It seems to me that uh, there has been a clear growth of Christ's kingdom since Acts chapter 2. Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, he did not say that there are no gates that are trying to prevail. Of course, they're trying to prevail, but they're not going to succeed in prevailing. That's his point. So there is resistance to the kingdom, and that's what's uh, I indicated by the fact that it's not a straight line over here. This is representing here all of the opposition to the kingdom, but gradually Christ's kingdom is making more and more progress against Satan's kingdom. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. I've actually referenced this a little bit earlier. Isaiah chapter 9 is a passage which speaks of Christ's first coming as the time when he sets up the kingdom. And many, many passages like this that I think fed into the apostle, uh, the, uh, John the Baptist and Christ's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not 2,000 years away, but it's at hand. It's about to uh, begin. Now, Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Everybody agrees that's a reference to the first coming when Jesus is born. But look at what happens in the next verse. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. <coughs> Notice that the kingdom doesn't come in all at once with a big bang, like on the free mill scheme. It's gradual. It keeps increasing. And that phrase, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, study Acts 2 sometime. You'll see that Peter says Jesus is sitting on the throne of David right now in the heavenlies. And so whatever it means there, Peter's authoritative interpretation of it is that Jesus fulfills that. And uh, I think, again, the, the um, post-millennial uh, scheme there fits the evidence the best. Now, there is persecution, there is opposition, but he guarantees that uh, over time his will triumph. Isaiah 42 implies that Jesus is going to be resisted immediately after he's anointed. And uh, this is quoted in the Gospels, uh, the anointing is being fulfilled in him. But as a result of the anointing, Isaiah 42 promises, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles 
He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. He won't fail, he says. He's not going to be discouraged. Now, being discouraged implies that there's a long process of time over which it's possible to get discouraged. And that's exactly what we find on this picture here. And uh, yet he guarantees he will not be discouraged. He's going to... Uh, apply his law and his victory until it triumphs in history and if you look at pages one and three you'll see not only the middle column that the gradual increase of his kingdom but the third column gives all kinds of scriptures that talk about the total triumph of his kingdom and it continues on 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 page uh, three now pre-mills correctly say that this triumph cannot happen until after the tribulation and it cannot happen until after the resurrection has happened and they're correct but what they've forgotten is you know which resurrection which tribulation and uh, we believe it's not some future tribulation but it's the resurrection that happened right here in 30 AD and it's the tribulation there in the first century that is what is connected with the the growth of his kingdom and the christianization of the world now this is a hugely practical doctrine and i didn't uh, bring a handout other than three copies in my briefcase for those of you who don't have that already i think most of you probably do but i have a handout that shows the incredible practical well the devastatingly practical implications of believing the wrong thing about the future uh, it, all kinds of things that will happen in your life so it's an important doctrine but just faith alone, I think, is important because if you do not believe that God has promised the victory of the gospel in the future, you're not going to have the faith to attempt victory through the Great Commission because faith is founded on Scripture. And if we don't believe there are promises, there is no basis for faith apart from the promises of Scripture. And I think too many times we are like the ten spies who went into the land of canaan and they looked at the giants instead of god's promises and they said we can't do it our focus needs to be on the promises of god so let me just give you a couple the bible promises that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea isaiah 11 verse 9 that's pretty deep i don't think submarines have gotten to the bottom of the sea yet i mean that's a lot of water he says that's the kind of knowledge that's eventually going to happen in this earth uh, many other verses echo the same thing here's one all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you psalm 22 verse 27 all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you o lord and shall glorify your name psalm 86 verse 9 so it's all the families of the nations it's the nations themselves that will be worshiping him he shall speak peace to the nations his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth you have zechariah 9 verse 10 and that's repeated in psalm 72 8 and if you look at these charts again one of the things you'll notice is that with post-millennialism the reversal of history occurs at the cross things were getting worse and worse down to the cross but the cross reverses it makes possible the christianization of the world whereas on amillennialism and premillennialism the 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 time that history gets reversed is not the cross it's the second coming of christ 
on both of those systems. And so inadvertently, even though they do not intend to, they demean the power and they demean the effectiveness of the cross and the purpose of the cross to uh, uh, have sufficient power to uh, Christianize this world. Let me give you a couple of quotes along these lines. Here's a premillennialist, uh, John Walvoord, who has been a champion of premillennialism for many years. He says, Christians have no immediate solutions to the problems of our day. A solution to this unrest and turmoil is provided in the Bible, and there is no other. That solution is that Jesus Christ himself is coming back to bring peace and rest to the world. Notice where the focus is. He doesn't say that the cross makes the difference. It's the second coming. It has to be the visible second coming of Christ. Now contrast what he said there with what Jesus said in the first century. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So he is saying the cross is the time that reverses the effect of, uh, of Satan upon this world. The cross is the time when he's going to begin, instead of things getting worse and worse, that all men will begin to be coming and be drawn uh, to himself. Even the demons will be cleansed from the earth eventually, Zechariah 13 says. Now, even though amillennialists are um, many times more centered on the cross, they keep falling into the same error because they have the great tribulation as being in the future which means for them again it's the second coming of christ which brings in the victory of jesus christ it's not something that happens at least in terms of of culture and um and social order uh here in time let me give you a, a an example herman hanko is a major defender of amillennialism he says the world is filled with sin and getting worse a hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage so it sounds like the cross, it's not even possible for the cross. There's nothing that can be done in history as a result of what Christ did on the cross to be able to salvage this. He goes on, he says, this is not mere quibbling over words. This strikes at the heart of the millennial question. I agree with him, it does. He says, forgotten is the fact that sin and the curse made it forever impossible for the cultural mandate to be fulfilled in this present world. And so I believe that both systems lack a faith in the power of the cross to change history. When Christ said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, it's not enough. They say, well, we believe in the victory of Christ, but it's an empty victory. If it takes his physical, they long for. And I believe that Christ's response to us is get back to work. I've given you a great commission and it's not fulfilled yet. The great commission says disciple the nations, Christianize the nations. And until that is done, you cannot be asking to get bailed out. Your job is not finished. Those who discount Christ's dominion of the nations must realize, quote, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 17. That's his goal. That's his purpose. And we believe that his purpose of saving the world is going to be accomplished. That was the object of his redemption. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. He's going to be successful in that. Progressively, he is applying redemption. And at the end of history, all sin will be removed. All the uh, non-elect will be removed from the world, and we're going to have a world in which dwells righteousness. And all through the New Testament, you see the world is the, the object of his redemption. John 4, verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Charles Spurgeon has been very well received 
by uh, evangelicals, and he might be a good person to hand out to people, you know, in terms of uh, this subject of postmillennialism. But he said in one of his sermons that since the Father has promised the conversion of the world, and since the object of Christ's redemption is the redemption of the world, and the Spirit fulfills that which the Father and the Son have done, here's what he says, the Holy Spirit would never suffer the imputation to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. Christ said, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Not casting away the world, not condemning the world. Remember, he said he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He, here he says his purpose is to reconcile the world to himself. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 2, verse 2. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. 1 John 4, verse 4. See, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth, he sends us out to take possession of the nation. And you know what? That possession of the nations didn't happen overnight in the image of that in the Old Testament. Joshua was given possession. I mean, was given an inheritance, but he had to possess his inheritance. And it took many generations before they were finally able to conquer the land of Canaan, but it was surely done in God's uh, providence. And it, it's taken many, many generations to get to where we are right now, but it will surely be done as well. The kingdom starts as small as a grain of mustard seed, and it grows into the greatest of herbs. It starts as leaven, which leavens the whole lump. And I don't think there can be any doubt that the kingdom has progressed on many different levels, not just in number of people being saved, but also in God's blessings worldwide. Uh, here is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Amen? <laughs> all enemies. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. What a hope. What a promise. What a vision. And it's my prayer that this would be a vision that would put such fire in your bellies that you would be very zealous in the extension of his kingdom. You'd have faith. You'd have a desire and an encouragement that he will do that which he has promised and that which he has commanded. Our desire is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and uh, uh, to him be the glory when that is achieved. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises of it. And I pray that we would have hearts that are stirred up with faith, with adoration, with exaltation in the victory that came through Jesus Christ. He has won the battle, and we are simply standing in that victory. Help us, Father, to step by step have the faith to bring into uh, uh, history that which you have already blessed us with in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And may we, Father... Uh, Rejoice with that joy indescribable and full of glory as we become more and more convinced that uh, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.